you could if you had a lot of solar, but you have to be able to generate that much power in return. It's, see, people living in houses plugged into the grid just think it's magic. Boom, there it is. Turn on the air conditioner and run it all night. It's not so on a boat. All of your energy is derived on board 100%. Welcome to the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast, the show where you learn how to plan, build, and live the tiny lifestyle. I'm your host, Ethan Waldman, and this is episode 138 with Rick Moore. Living off-grid is especially challenging when you're on a 50-foot sailboat in the middle of the ocean. My guest today is Rick Moore, whose sailboat, The Sophisticated Lady, is fully set up to live off-grid for months at a time with solar and wind power, a water desalination unit, and even a garden on board. Rick walks us through his systems and helps us figure out how we can apply them to tiny house living. I hope you stick around. But before we get started, did you know that I personally send a tiny house newsletter every week on Tuesdays? It's called Tiny Tuesdays, and it's a weekly email with tiny house news, interviews, photos, and resources. It's free to subscribe, and I even share sneak peeks of things that are coming up, ask for feedback about upcoming podcast guests, and more. It's really the best place to keep a pulse on what I'm doing in the tiny house space and also stay informed of what's going on in the tiny house movement. To sign up, go to thetinyhouse.net slash newsletter, where you can sign up for the Tiny Tuesdays newsletter. And of course, you can unsubscribe at any time. I will never send you spam. And if you ever don't want to receive emails, it's easy to unsubscribe. So again, that's thetinyhouse.net slash newsletter. Thanks, and I hope you enjoy next week's Tiny Tuesdays newsletter. All right, I am here with Rick Moore. Rick Moore is the founder of the very first sailing lifestyle YouTube channel, Sailing Sophisticated Lady. With an entrepreneurial spirit and a flair for capturing the beauty of the world on film, he lives full-time aboard his 50-foot sailboat, constantly in search of that perfect image or moment in time. Rick's knowledge and skill in the marine and video industries combined with his approach to social media have led him to the forefront of a competitive YouTube niche with over 400 episodes and instructional videos online. He is passionate about sustainability and the environment and his boat is set up to live completely off-grid for months at a time with solar and wind power, a water desalination unit, and even a garden on board. Rick is living large in a tiny floating home in the hopes of inspiring others to question social norms and live life differently. Rick Moore, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Ethan. It's good to have you here. Um, you know, so most people who listen to the show are interested in movable tiny homes or stationary tiny homes. Um, but what really caught my my interest about about your setup is that you have all these systems on board. And a lot of my listeners are interested in solar, wind, off-grid. And so I was hoping um, we could just kind of go through all your systems and maybe you could talk about like what the setup is like, what are some, maybe what are some pitfalls, what are some things that you've figured out along the way and just, yeah, go from there. Yeah, sure. No problem. Yeah, I've got a lot of years of experience in alternative energy products. I mean, I started training as a side job kind of thing back about 25 years ago. 
And I was working with a company up in Canada called Ocean Outfitters, and we used to outfit these offshore sailing boats. So that's where I started getting affiliated with the uh, the idea that, wow, you could take one of these tiny sailboat homes and sail around the world, you know, not limited by land, not limited by wheels, not limited by anything, and just keep going. And if you did it properly, setting it up with solar and wind, it was fully sustainable long term. So that became very attractive, very interesting to me, and I just kept developing it. And this is my third boat that I've worked on to the effect of making it self-sufficient and sustainable. And she is pretty much like sophisticated lady is almost about 99% sustainable, you know, fully by solar and wind aside from propulsion. That's the only thing because electric engines right now would still, you know, that's an obstacle going to be very hard to overcome. We still need a bit more time yet before battery technology really evolves to that point, but it's getting there. But everything else, yeah, we are fully electric and everything on board is uh, solar powered now. Nice. So yeah, so let's start there with with electricity. How, you know, how much solar generation do you do and and how important is the wind generation in your in your setup? Well, it's most of our power comes from solar for sure, but of course we get into these periods of time like now where we are actually in rainy season in uh, San Andres, Colombia. So normally we would have about 8 to 9 out of 10 days sunny. Right now we have about five to six days that are sunny. So there's three, four days in a row sometimes where it gets cloudy and we still need extra power and the wind generator comes in then. So the two of them, they complement and offset each other. When it's sunny, we have solar power. When it's not sunny, we typically have lots of wind because there's squalls and storms and we get a lot of power from the wind generator at those times. Nice. So are you, you know, on a squall you know windy day that's overcast are you able to run everything you need off the wind power or is it kind of just holding you over until you can get that full sun again it's holding us over until we can get full sun again because most of our power as i say comes from solar and we i mean we've refined our systems to the point where we can live on probably four to five kilowatts a day but we're high we're heavy power users i've got an editing studio with High power computers, you know, full 24 hour security with eight cameras all around the boat, two fridges and a freezer and all this stuff that needs power. So we have a, an engine that we use as backup when necessary, but I try and use that as an absolute last resort. So what we have done in the, the meantime is we have started converting the boat to lithium power and we currently have 10 kilowatts of lithium batteries. It's battleborne batteries that we use on board. And we've just received our next upgrade for that. So we're taking it from 10 kilowatts up to 15 kilowatts of storage, just so that we can get through more days of shade. Because the longer we can sustain ourselves without having to run the engine, like if the lithium power carries us through, the solar system on board will recharge us very quickly. I have a bank of uh, let's see, about 12 solar panels on board that I've outfitted in areas, you know, that is not affecting our life, like our life on board. It's not in the way. We don't have to walk on them or anything like that. They're all on the roof of the cockpit, on the bimini, on top of the Dodger, on top of the dinghy davits, etc. And they total around just under 2.4 kilowatts. So we can get quite a bit of power out of that. The system typically puts out at 12 volts, like we're running a 12 volt system, just like you would run in a small home or an RV. 
And at 12 volts, the system during the peak hours of the day puts out about 120 to 125 amps at 12 volts. And it does that for several hours a day. So we get quite a bit of power back in the lithium bank from that. What's the what's the advantage of the lithium batteries over over, you know, like your deep cycle marine batteries or something like that? Well, the deep cycle marine batteries and golf cart batteries is what we always use because they're inexpensive. You can buy them anywhere. So they're bulky, they're heavy, and they're they're lead based with um, the electrolyte inside. So you have to constantly maintain them. Now, with a with an electrolyte based battery like that, you can typically only draw them down to you know fifty percent maximum before they start getting below the usable voltage, where your equipment will start shutting down and you'll start damaging the batteries. Lithium is the opposite of that. You can take them right down to you could take them to zero effectively, and they will just shut off to protect themselves from overload. But we typically have never run them down less than 10%. But at 10%, we're still getting fully usable voltage at 12.5, you know, between 12.5 and 13 volts through the entire usable spectrum. So it's quite an advance in technologies. Of course, it's more expensive, but the cost benefit is starting to come into play a lot more now that they're making more lithium batteries. They're becoming more commonplace. More people are buying them. And I think in the next couple of years, you're going to see them become a much more affordable technology for sure. But it's just like computers. If you're going to buy the latest, greatest thing, you're going to spend the most amount of money for it. Sooner or later, that that cost comes down. So that when the masses start buying more of it, of course, it's less expensive and more people. And then it just it's like a wheel. It just or a, you know snowball. It just keeps getting bigger and it's rolling. Right. A few years later, people's iPhones are faster than that top of the line computer that you bought. Yeah, exactly. Technology evolves very, very quickly, and the same thing is happening with batteries. I mean, you've got Tesla, they're working on all kinds of new technologies, but they still have issues like the, the power ratio on a Tesla battery is much higher than what we have on the LIFO batteries here, which are lithium iron phosphate. But lithium iron phosphate is a safe technology. It's not any, it doesn't have explosive technologies or anything like it or tendencies. It doesn't overheat and just, you know, spontaneously combust. So for a boat, that's a big concern. So they take up more space for the same amount of energy, but we don't have to worry about, you know, burning our boats to the ground and trying to get into the water before, you know, we're burned alive. So that's a big consideration. Right. Yeah. I've, I've a few reflections that I'm, that I'm having and, you know, I'd love for you to confirm or, or kind of elaborate is that it sounds like uh, redundancy in these systems is really important on a boat. Like you've got solar, primarily wind as a backup to that and then as a backup to your backup you have a, a generator um is that yeah we have we have a diesel engine on board that has dual high output alternators made by a company called balmer and a lot of your rv guys will probably be familiar with them because they put out a high amount of power in a 12 volt environment or 24 or whatever you're running just from the main engine and then We've wanted to back that up also because, you know, sometimes we have a problem with an alternator because they're work very hard when the engine's running. So we did buy a little generator and it's just like a two kilowatt generator. It's just like a two kilowatt generator, but it actually provides a backup so that we can run our battery charger on board if we have no other charging sources running at the time. Got it. Yeah. And it sounds like the lithium batteries could really appeal to, you know, a tiny house dweller as well because storage is always of paramount importance and you know if you can fit 
more power or the same amount of power in a smaller space, um, that could be ideal for, for a tiny house as well. Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you're living in a tiny house on the grid, then it's not so much of a concern. But if you're trying to live off grid, then of course, yes, storage becomes a concern and efficiency. And certainly any of the lithium batteries are much more efficient and a lot more storage capabilities, a lot higher discharge capabilities. You can't damage them. I mean, compared to lead acid counterparts, but uh, yeah, the lithium, the trade-off right now is the cost, but they're also almost it's virtually a lifetime investment because even the ones that we bought, the Battleborn batteries, they come with a full 10-year guarantee that if anything happens to them in the first 10 years, they'll just replace the battery. Now, you might be down to, say, 80 or 85% of its rating capacity after that, but they say that for after 3,000 cycles. Now, with my old lead-acid batteries, we used to cycle them once per day. Because you discharge them all night, you charge them up during the day. Discharge them all night, charge them up during the day. So every single day compare, was basically a full discharge and recycle. With the, what I'm finding now with the lithium is they are not discharging every day because, you know, they're staying within a range of typically about 50 to 80 percent almost all the time. And that doesn't qualify as a cycle. There is a computer that monitors them. And the Victron Connect app that tells us, you know, how many cycles, how much wear and tear on the batteries and all of that. And I have had these batteries installed for almost a year. So let's say 330 days, but the software has only recognized 100 cycles. So that means in just over or just under one year, I've only registered 100 cycles and they're good for 3000 cycles minimum. That's a long term investment. So you could be looking at 30 years. Yeah, potentially. I mean, yeah, that's. That's fantastic. Even if I look at it as 20 years is a good compromise. That's a long time to own a set of batteries because I've had to replace my old lead acid batteries typically every four to five years maximum. If you use them hard, then yeah, you're looking at three years maximum because liveaboard, we're full-time liveaboard. And like I said, we're heavy power users because we, we do live on board. We like creature comfort. We try to bring some of the comforts of home along with us and we run a business here. So I use a lot of power just in that alone. Sure. So. I want to shift to to water, um, which um, you know is I'm sure kind of unique on a boat. But why don't you tell us about you know your water system? You know how you're getting drinking water, where you know how much you can store, where it goes, all that stuff. Well, up until this year, we have always depended on land sources primarily for water. So that means that you are limited to being in areas close to marinas where you can go and fill up. That's what we've been used to. And we have to take the boat or we have the dinghy, which is our like our small family car. It's just an inflatable boat that we take back and forth from the primary boat back and forth to shore. The dinghy, we would have a bunch of five gallon containers that we would fill with water just at the marina or at somebody's house, friend's place, whatever, and bring them back to the boat. And we would have to do that at least every couple of days, you know, because we probably average about 20 gallons a day living conservatively. Now, that changed this past year because for years I have wanted to put on a, an actual desalinator, like a desalination system, a water maker, but they're very expensive. You know, good ones, you can buy cheap ones for two to $3,000, but then you need a two to $3,000 generator run it. And of course you run an hour or two a day and 
that's going to take fuel and then you have ongoing fuel costs, maintenance costs, everything like that. I wanted to go to the leading edge of the technology instead of just the, the bare roots basement. I wanted something again, long-term that is much more efficient, much more environmentally friendly. So I went with one that could run directly off of the 12 volt batteries so that when we have surplus solar energy, we just turn on the water maker and we use all the extra power. Once the batteries are full, we just use the extra power to make water. And it actually takes water in from the ocean around the boat, as long as we're in a nice anchorage, like it's not a swamp water anchorage or something like that. But we are right now in a beautiful anchorage. It's perfect. I mean, San Andres, Colombia is a very, very beautiful island and we have great sparkling crystal clear water under the boat. And we can run the water maker any day we want. And we have sun a lot of the times. So whenever we have extra sun, we just throw it on for five, six hours. And it makes about, it makes 50 liters per hour, or about just over 12, 12 and a half gallons per hour. So we can make up a good amount of water in four or five hours. And we don't have to run it every day if we don't want to. So that has been a life changer, like a game changer for us. Because now we don't have to be chasing down marinas. We don't have to live next to marinas. We can live fully independently at anchor. We don't depend on gas for the stove or anything because it's all fully electric now as well. And, you know, being that we have unlimited, pretty much unlimited electricity and unlimited water available to us, those are the main things for long-term sustainable off-grid living. And we've got those down now. So now it's just a matter of knowing the systems well enough to be able to keep them running because they're mechanical systems. The mechanical systems, as you know, just like a car or anything else, they're gonna break. So you have to learn how to maintain and sustain this stuff on your own. Otherwise you could still be out. We, we could be in an island in the middle of the South Pacific, something breaks and we don't have the parts or the knowledge to fix it, then we're still without basic necessities. So that's where my other background comes in. It's just, I've been training and all this stuff for years. And if something happens, 99% of the time I can fix it myself. Nice. So, so how much water can you store? Like, so you're making these 12 gallons per hour when it's sunny, you know, how, how much can you hold? Well, we have three water tanks on board and one fuel tank. So we have one fuel tank is 105 gallons and there's a matching water tank on the other side is 105 gallons. Those are in the stern of the boat at the back. In the forward side of the, the bow of the boat, we have two more water tanks that are 80 gallons each. So we can store 160 gallons up forward. And if we want to use the 105 gallon tank in the back, we do. But we leave it empty most of the time now because with a water maker, we don't need more than 80 gallons in reserve or rather 160 gallons in reserve. That's more than enough to keep us going for a long time. And we leave the back tank empty now, which saves us over a thousand pounds of weight in the boat. We can use that for other purposes. Right. And I, I assume that there is kind of a weight limit or that as you get heavier, the boat doesn't perform as well. Well, exactly. Just like anything else, it'll take more power to get it going the same speed. A sailboat is always going to move no matter what, but it will go faster if it's lighter. And so you just don't want to load it down too much, but there is a fine balance there. As long as you keep the weight below the water line, it actually helps uh, stabilize the movement of the boat, the motion in the water. So, I mean, a, nice, a, a good heavy monohull is a very comfortable boat compared to some that are way too light just because they're built to be very light and very fast. You can have fast, but it's usually uncomfortable, or you can be a little slower and be more comfortable. And when you say comfortable, do you mean like 
you're not getting knocked around as much. The boat just feels more stable to be on. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, when we're moving, you know, sailing through rough seas or anything like that, it helps to have extra weight on the boat because it softens the motion of the boat as it reacts to the waves and the wind. Sure. If you're too light and sitting up on top of the water too much, you're much more like a cork and you bob around a lot more and the boat moves and that, of course, bounces you around inside a lot more at the same time. Got it. So um, what about hot water? Um, are you using solar to, to heat water as well? Well, we live in the tropics full time, so we don't even really need hot water, but there are methods like we have electric elements in the hot water tank and it also has a heat exchanger. So that when the engine is running, the coolant from the engine is pumped through the hot water tank. So it will heat it up very quickly when the engine is running. So if we need to run the engine for power or anything like that, we're heating the water at the same time. Or when the engine, or sorry, when the, the batteries are full from solar power and wind and everything, if we want to use some extra power towards that, we can just turn on the electric heater element in the hot water tank, and it will just heat the water with all the surplus power. Cool. So there's a couple of different ways that we can get hot water if we want. I mean, I don't like hot water, but I don't like cold water. I don't want to shower in really cold water or anything. So for me, 70 degrees would be freezing. <laughs> I'm sure. If you're, if you're full-time tropics, 70 degrees would be freezing. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so I guess uh, I was going to ask heating and cooling, but I'm, I'm guessing you're not doing much heating. Um, are you able to run, I'm assuming the boat has, has air conditioners if it, if you need it and you're able to run them off of the solar? No, that's something, I mean, you could, if you had a lot of solar, but you have to be able to generate that much power in return. It just, the power, see people living in houses plugged into the grid just think it's magic. Boom, there it is. Turn on the air conditioner <laughs> yeah. and run it all night. It's not so on a boat. All of your energy is derived on board 100%, unless you are living in a marina and plugged into the marina. We always had a little portable water, sorry, a little portable air conditioner, but we just gave that away recently because it's just in storage all the time, taking up a lot of space. And I very rarely use it except when we're in marinas and I don't go to marinas unless we're working for them because I do commercial video as well. So we're making commercials for a lot of these businesses, you know, marine-based businesses, stuff like that. But that's the only time we ever used the air conditioner. So for me, it was just a waste of space. It was too big. If anything, I'll probably just step back to a little window air conditioner that I'll just put in one of the roof hatches or something whenever we absolutely need to. But the boat does not have built-in air conditioning because that would be something that takes way too much power to sustain. And I just don't like being locked inside all day. Sure. As soon as you turn on the air conditioning, you close up all the windows, you lock yourself in an air-conditioned environment, and that's just not my type of lifestyle. The boat, it's a French design. It was built in France. It has 32 opening hatches and ports everywhere. So you open up the hatches when you're at anchor, and it's like a wind tunnel in here. It's very, very well ventilated. So. Heat in the daytime is not usually a problem, but of course, heat generation we have to be careful for because with the three fridges and freezer and all of that, those generate heat, the computers generate heat, the security system generates heat, and it's just a matter of where we vent all of that out so it doesn't accumulate inside the boat. Sure, sure. So I want to turn now to your food systems. Um, tell me about what you're able to do on board in terms of gardening, how much of your food you're able to produce? Well, as far as, I mean, we're never going to sustain ourselves with this size of garden, but we want to have some type of fresh things, greens, you know, a few veggies. 
we focus on things that really help promote uh, well, long-term health and building the immune system because obviously you know what's going on in these days so that's a concern for also nobody's worried about your own health or safety more so than yourself so we just started refining growing what we were on what we were growing on board and whereas i've always had pretty plants and nice flowers and colors and things like that we scrubbed most of those and started going to fresh herbs and some veggies we grow some tomatoes we grow a lot of basil you know we grow red hot chili peppers literally and, and those are the kind of things that really help clean you out and you just eat those a little bit each day and they really make a big difference and we like to keep that on board so if we're in a place where you can't find them or can't get them we still have a little bit as backup so we just keep our gardens just constantly grooming them and refining what we do want to keep on board and getting rid of things that are not so efficient that we can't grow fast enough what what are you doing the gardening in are you using like five gallon buckets do you have planters raised beds like what's what is it like so we have not buckets but planters um now being it's a sailboat we can't go with the traditional you know round pots very much we do that when we're just germinating something but you have to remember we're a sailboat so we heal over and anything that's on the boat is going to fall over if it's not secured properly so we always go for a certain type of container that is rectangular like long and tall but square at the bottom and we can tie those down so we have homes for all of them to go into where they can be tied down and put in place and they won't move around when we sail so i mean just quickly i'll take you just for a quick view here but you can see right here can you see that yeah these are rectangular containers and they're all on a mount here, just right in the galley. It's just a little pedestal that separates mm -hmm. in the galley. But we have bungee cords on all of them that secure yep. them so they can't fall over when we're sailing. And then you've got your you've got your basil and your herbs right in the kitchen, right when you want to use them. Exactly. Now you see we're outside. Yep. And we have these same types of containers here. And when we're mm -hmm. sailing, they'll be bungeed down with cords so that they can't move. Got it. Same thing over on this side. It's all these square oblong containers that are very stable. So they're not inherently wanting to fall over every time we sail. They're rectangular so that because we sail and heel over this way or that way, right? you can see they run this way or that way. So they're not going to fall or slide or move anything. So they just stay right there. And we like to keep some just out on display when we're just living at anchor. So they just stay right here and get sun right here in the companionway. Nice. So we have a lot of plants and then, you know, more back here. So they're all over the place. Fantastic. And we're just getting refined. Like right now we have more growing than we can actually take with us when we're sailing. But it's because we're going to be here or have been here for a while, like almost five months now. And, you know, gives us some time to just mess around with stuff and experiment, try some things that we wouldn't normally do if we were on the move all the time. What has been the balance for you of how much time you spend on the move versus living at anchor? Well, typically I get pretty bored if we're in one place more than three, four weeks. This past year has been a couple of times just due to seasons and you know, hurricane season has a lot to do with that. There's only certain places you can go during hurricane season that are safe and you can be out of the way of storms and damage and you know potential issues like that. 
where we are now. We only plan to be here for two to three weeks, but of course, right after we got here, that's when COVID set in and we ended up landlocked or stuck. Uh, luckily, we were here because it's the perfect place to be landlocked and you know, stuck at an island that's beautiful with perfectly clear water under you and sunny skies all the time, because we can run a solar powered vessel here indefinitely and be able to make water from the, you know, the seawater underneath the boat because the anchorage is spectacular. That's, uh, that sounds very lucky and, and wonderful. Yeah, well, our alternative would have been to go back to Panama, but Panama, as much as we like Panama, we're waiting to go through the canal. We were supposed to go back in March to go through the Panama Canal and on into the Pacific. But of course, those plans got put on hold when all COVID lockdown, lockdown happened and we got shut down here. So we've been here ever since, and that's going on about five months now, but we are still preparing to go back to Panama but of course, Panama is in a bit of a, I don't know if you call it emergency status, but they've got some other, like a relapse happening. So they've closed down their borders again for a while. And we're just waiting to see what happens with that before we make any decisions. But hopefully in the next month or so, we're going to make our way back to Panama, get the boat ready to go through Canal, the Panama Canal, and then head off into the Pacific and start exploring that side of it. Nice. What is it like to plan to be out sailing away from land for you know weeks or even months at a time like how much preparation do you have to do and how do you even you know how do you begin to decide how much what food to bring on board and how to store it and just all that well for us it's kind of a perpetual existence we've always had to consider that whether you're sitting or whether you're getting ready to move Right before you get ready to move, if you're going to be doing a major passage, then yeah, you need to have some long-term provisions. So of course, we stock up on canned goods, canned vegetables, canned tomatoes, uh, you know, rice, couscous, quinoa, dry stuff that you can put away. We use vacuum containers a lot. We've got a new vacuum sealing machine for long-term storage and putting meats in the freezer. We have a backup freezer that we, you know, when we're getting ready to head offshore or anything, we fill that right up and turn it on, and it keeps probably at least uh, maybe a one and a half to two months supply just in reserve meat and stuff like that. But other than that, the main objective is just to keep us provisioned with fresh fruits and vegetables because that's what our, di our diet consists of mostly. So we stock up on as much of that as that we can handle that we know we're not going to end up throwing out for trying to keep it too long. And that's where, you know, just comes in, you turn up the fridge a little bit more, keep it a little bit colder uses more energy, but if you have the energy available, then you can keep your food stored longer, the long-term stuff. We also keep some stuff that is not refrigerated so that if the refrigeration breaks down, we don't lose everything. We still have other stuff. Sounds like you have redundancy built into your food systems as well. Yeah, and that's a necessity. If you're going to live aboard and be away from places, like we were already prepared for long-term shutdown here in San Andres when it happened so that even if uh, the supermarkets, everything was just boom, shut down, we still had enough supplies to go for at least several months, no problem. You know, we'd be living on canned stuff and rices, and that, but hey, you need to live on something. We've got it. Certainly, sure. And we got, you know, indefinite amount of water at the same time and solar power, so we don't have to depend on going to a marina or anybody bringing us out to anything or going to fill up fuel for the generator all the time. It's 99% self-sufficiency and self-sustainable right now, which is awesome. I was curious because this, 
sounds like it's really, you know, a long-term lifestyle for you. Um, how did you, how did you get into this? What were you doing? How were you living before you were living on a boat? Well, I was living on land, but coexisting on a boat. So I, you know, it probably almost 10 years before I got on this boat and just moved away full time, I was still refining the art, you know, practicing what it was like to live on board. And when I was in Canada, I would have the boat fully outfitted and just learning how to design it and maintain it so that it could be self-sufficient. And yeah, it was just a matter, it's a mindset, really. You just get in a mindset where you want to be self-sustainable and you just keep dealing with learning things that you need to know in order to do that, to keep taking you in that direction. You hang out with people that are already doing it. You talk to people that are already doing it. You surround yourself in that environment. And you just change your entire mindset and you stop doing things that lead you in a different direction or take you away from what it is that you ultimately desire. Anybody can do it, but hey, some people aren't willing to give up, you know, the three-story house with air conditioning 24 hours a day and the Mercedes in the garage and all that. So you can't really do anything for them. That's just their choice, their lifestyle. And if they want to continue to pay for that, then they do. Me, I just wanted something different. I wanted to be much more efficient. I didn't want to have to depend on a full-time job. I didn't want to have to be rich in order to just go out and find a better life than living in a city or near a city. I don't know. I just wanted something different. And I wanted to be closer with nature and, and wasting less, basically, just refining the art of being environmentally responsible. What is it? What is it? You said you, this is your third boat. I'm curious, you know, if someone listening was like, okay, that's what I want to do. I want to live full time on a boat. What? I know this is this is a hard question to answer in tiny houses too, but what do you think is the like minimum amount of money that someone's going to spend to kind of get into this lifestyle? Well, yeah, again, it's relative to what you desire from the lifestyle. So there's a vast variety of extremes. I mean, you can start. I've got friends that live on 26 foot boats, 28 foot boats that you know are like almost like living in a closet but they give them what they need they have water storage they have food storage they have the freedom to pull anchor and let the lines go and sail wherever they want whenever they want and they might live on just food which might cost them a hundred bucks a week or something so they could live probably pretty nicely on four or five hundred dollars a month for you know one or two people but it it's really depends on them if they motor everywhere, of course, they're going to consume more diesel fuel. If they go to marinas, of course, they're going to spend money on, on marina fees. If they eat out, you know, go out for dinner a lot, of course, that's going to be very expensive. But those that really live efficiently and, you know, they go fishing when they're sailing and stuff like that, it makes a big, big difference. And catching rainwater. I did that for years also before I got the water maker. We have a specific carp that I designed and built that we put out on the foredeck and when it's raining, it's, it encompasses about 100 square feet of area, and it just collects all that into a funnel and runs it straight down into a tube right into our water tank. And every little bit helps. Nice. Now, do you have to, do you have to treat that water? Well, usually when it's raining, we let the first few minutes ride uncollected because that's where all the dust comes from that settles out of the air and everything. But the water, rainwater is... It's just like naturally pure distilled water. 
That's the benefit of collecting rainwater. The only bacteria you're going to get is if it's from something that starts growing in your tank or something that washed out of your tarp, you know, anything like that. So we don't drink the water out of the tanks. Like we don't just drink the raw water as it comes out from the rain tarp or anything, but we store it in our tanks and that's utility water. So we use that for showering, washing dishes, you know, doing laundry, all that kind of stuff. But then we have a secondary purifier that's a small household type reverse osmosis system. And we run everything through that just for consumable water. So anything that we're drinking with, cooking with, making ice cubes with, anything like that all comes from this secondary reverse osmosis system. And what we will do to make sure that there's no biological activity in the tanks is just once a month or so, you dump just like a capful or a tablespoon of chlorine or bleach or something into each tank when they're full and let it settle out. And that will just make sure that there's no living organisms in there that are gonna come through your system. And then the reverse osmosis system, the first component of that is a block carbon filter, which is there to, it's designed to remove any chemicals from the water, such as chlorine. So it absorbs all of that. And you change that filter once a year. So we don't use a lot of chlorine, not even you know as much as they do in a, in a city-based system where that filter needs to be changed sometimes more frequently. But we monitor our own systems here. I monitor the pH of the water, the, you know, the TDS, the total dissolved solids, parts per million, all of that. So we keep an eye on our systems and you, you just become very close with your own environment. You know, it's not like you just turn on the light switch when you need light and boom, there's magic, there's light there. It's not you just open up the faucet and there's magically water. No, you, all of your systems are running because you know how to run them and you keep them running and you appreciate that and you realize Use what you need, but need what you use, basically. Nice. I wonder uh, if there are any resources or books that you, you recommend to people who are looking to learn more about this type of lifestyle, be it on land or sea. Well, years ago, I did all of my studying back with video, <laughs> just renting old VHS tapes. Remember those? <laughs> And then it became CDs or DVDs rather. But uh, I used to just rent them from a company down in Toronto that was like a bookstore, but they had all of these videos available. You can get the books and everything. There's no one end all be all story or anything. If you're interested in it, you just start researching what's currently available because what's available now is going to be a lot different than anything I researched 15 years ago. But there's always going to be current information. Of course, everybody now loves to watch and learn on YouTube. And that's why I'm in the last couple of years, I've started adapting my channel more to be a resource in the sailing lifestyle and living in a tiny home and being self-sufficient. So I try and incorporate something into almost every video, just a piece. I don't want to make entire episodes about it where 99% of the audience is going to be bored and click. I've had enough of that. Boom. But just something where everybody picks up a little tip in each video just by paying attention and watching how we do things, what we're doing and things like that. So, I mean, I do a lot of that on our channel as well. So that's just on YouTube. And you know, I've been doing it a long time. So I have a lot of experience and all that kind of stuff. It's hard to pass on in one video, let alone one year or anything. So that's why I just do a little bit at a time and just keep it building. And that's, that's what's slowly starting to build our, our subscribership now. We're getting a lot of new people coming on because we're starting to share a lot more of this information than I used to used to be more just entertainment. Oh, this is life on the boat, having guests on board and doing charters, exploring the different islands, meeting new people, different countries, that kind of thing. 
but it's a little more in depth than that. And I find that most people nowadays are interested in the how to say, okay, we get it. You got there, you're doing it. Now, how do we do it? So that's what I get a lot of questions about. So we started focusing a lot more on that with our new, uh, our newer episodes. So are there, you know, for example, tours of, of your, your solar systems or your gardens, the things that we've talked about are these things that people can see on your YouTube channel? Yeah, they're all in there. They're all scattered around the last videos. Like there's not one video about any one specific thing, but there are videos about each step of the way when I was building the solar system that's on board. It's all there and it's individual steps and telling people this is how we did it to start. And then we're going to do this. And then even in the latest two videos, there's a bunch of stuff about our newest expansion with the new lithium system and increasing our capacity with the solar power and monitoring our wind generator output. And and just starting to be able to focus on actually how much power is being produced by individual components so we can refine them and tailor our own usage and consumption on board just to kind of match so that we can live within the means that we're able to generate on board. Because there's a limit to how much power you can generate on board just by the nature of the square footage that's available to cover. We're not a big RV where you can just cover the entire top of the RV with solar panels. We have to walk on top of our living space because that's the deck where we handle the sails and everything. So that's all a consideration. Got it. Got it. Well, is there um, is there one video that uh, that is your favorite? I tend to prefer the, I mean, I, I like the tutorial videos, but even for me watching them, it's like, yeah, I already know that. I don't need to watch that again. <laughs> but, <laughs> But one of my favorite videos that really went over well in the last couple of months, it was called, I forget which episode of SSL it was, but it was, um, it was almost an hour long and it was just an extended version of a day in the life of, you know, just Adelina and I going out and running around the dinghy and going to explore some remote island that we'd never been to before and coming back and getting devoured by this big storm in the same afternoon and going out to make sure our friends were okay because all the boats in the anchorage started dragging anchor in this big squall. It was just called, it was a nice day and then. Nice. Because <laughs> it was really nice and then all of a sudden, boom, it just collapsed on us. But it was the whole day in a nutshell and encompassed in like a 50-minute video. And that video got more great reviews than anything. And I thought, oh, everybody's going to hate this. We put up an hour-long video about one day and people are going to like lose their minds. Oh. I can't watch that. But the video got like half a million views or something, you know, which is good for our channel. It's big for our channel, but a lot of great reviews, all the subscribers, everybody always came back with great comments, lots of likes. And it was good because it was just a feel good video. We came out of the storm okay. We had no issues and everything. It was just a beautiful day. Awesome. Well, I think we'll we'll leave it there. Rick Moore, thank you so much for being a guest on the show. Oh, no problem at all. And thank you so much for the invitation, Ethan. Appreciate it and glad to be here. Thank you so much to Rick Moore for being a guest on the show today. You can find the show notes from today's episode, including lots of photos of the sophisticated lady, at thetinyhouse.net slash 138. Again, that's thetinyhouse.net slash 138. Don't forget to check out and subscribe to the Tiny Tuesdays newsletter at thetinyhouse.net slash newsletter. Well, that's all for this week. I'm your host, Ethan Waldman, and I'll be back next week with another episode of the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast.